Welcome to Authentic Influence with host Anthony Chansamuth, the show where we get real and share the stories and struggles, strategies and tactics of successful influencers and entrepreneurs so that you too can take action to create the life and business that you choose. And now over to Anthony. What's rockin' world? It's Anthony Chansmith here from Simple Creative Marketing, and we are back with Authentic Influence Live. And today we are talking about scorecard marketing and how to leverage scorecards uh, to grow your brand and your business. And uh, I've brought onto the show my man, Glenn Carlson. Uh, I'm going to bring Glenn in a moment. In, in a second, uh, Glenn is an award-winning entrepreneur and co-founder of Dent. Uh, Dent is a multi-award-winning business and leadership development academy um, or sorry company with structured training programs facilitated by successful business speakers and mentors uh, glenn and his team are best known for helping businesses business owners develop an unfair advantage in their industry by effectively creating what he calls a personal monopoly uh, and we're going to learn all about that uh, the company is i think it's currently at 50 uh, a team of 50 across 12 different time zones and um, they have produced over 500 business authors uh, welcome to the show Glenn Carlson. Thanks, brother. Great to be here, mate. <laughs> Appreciate you having me. Now, uh, just for some context, I first learned out about the KPI program, which is Key Person of Influence, the book. Uh, the 40, back then, it was a 40-week accelerator, uh, and I actually participated in a program when I was marketing manager for Hub Australia, uh, and Glenn and Brad, who was a, who's the CEO, uh, they, they, they don't know each other for a while, uh, and I actually went through the program and it was a fantastic experience. And um, uh, Glenn and I have met on different occasions, and, and it's always fun to have a chat with uh, Glenn. So let's why don't we just start there, Glenn? Like, let's go back to um, yeah. you know why you started Keeper sort of influence and in what is now Dent. Um, I guess what's why did you focus on helping business owners exp- expand their influence? Yeah, so Dan and I, so Dan's obviously the author of the Key Person of Influence book, uh, wasn't written at the time. We started our first business when we were 21. We're essentially marketers and promoters. We promote authors and speakers. We put them on stage and uh, we're, we're spending about a quarter of a million bucks a month on ads, right? So this is before Facebook. Everyone still had a Hotmail account. Um, well, no, Facebook was 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 there, but... Um, you know, you certainly couldn't commercialize it. It was still a toy at that point. And we would find business owners with a product or a service and we would promote the CEO. We would promote the founder. We would promote the leader, the entrepreneur, and we'd put them on a stage, pull an audience. They'd d- deliver a compelling presentation. And then people would go on and obviously then want to do business with them in some way. And so Dan and I were always sort of behind the scenes. Maybe we'd do an MC role, et cetera. But we remember sitting uh, behind the AV desk and there was one particular speaker. He built sort of $3 billion businesses. And he, in 45 minutes, created more opportunity and created more value and created more money in a 45-minute talk than we were personally going to make that entire year. And we were running a multi-million dollar business at this point. And that's where it really kind of clicked, right? Because as like we didn't want to be um, you know, in the rat race. We didn't want to be working for someone else. You know, we wanted freedom, autonomy, influence, expression, et cetera, hence our own business. And, 
you know, it was it was kind of like in our mindset, there's there's being an employee and then there's being a business owner. And what we really realized that in that moment was there's there was another gear, there was another level of influencer, right? And now the word influencer is used everywhere. It's Instagram, it's this, it's that, it's girl, girls in bikinis with an Instagram account. It's like, I'm an influencer, right? It just wasn't a term. It wasn't in the language at the time. Instagram didn't exist. Um, but we realized that there was something really powerful about this idea of the founder brand um, and that there was something very different that went into making an individual compelling um, and that individual could then make a product or a service compelling. And it was much, much easier and cheaper. Like when we looked at, you know, our, uh, when we looked at our numbers, it was much easier to promote a human, right? Because people respond and react and engage and trust people. It was much easier and cheaper to promote a person that would then promote their product and service than it was to try and just promote the product and service directly. And so then the uh, to try and shorten the story a little bit, the GFC hit, we hadn't been applying any of those same principles ourselves. We it was just business as usual. And we'd built a fragile business and we had to look at what was the knowledge we had that was anti-fragile, that was recession-proof, that was, you know, global catastrophe-proof. And we realized well, we knew how to produce influencers. We'd been producing them for almost 10 years before we started Dent. Um, we knew how to build multi-million dollar businesses, right? We'd, we'd done that ourselves as well. Why don't we put the two together? And so that's when we started working with small businesses specifically around helping them apply the same principles that we'd been applying with our clients previously. And that was, that was 10 years ago. So we built the key person of Influence Accelerator specifically to be able to help position traditional businesses and their founder as the go-to brand in their industry. So how did you, I, I love the story that you tell about just getting started, right? Um, I think it was the first event in London. I'm trying to remember if that's where it was, uh, where you brought people into a room or was that in Australia? I can't remember. Uh, mate, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. There was there was a lot going on at the time. But look, we launched in the UK, right? So, okay. so the first key person of influence program was in the UK. Um, so I'd actually been living in Bali for a couple of years, came back with Dan. Um, the first event kicked off in the UK and then within nine months I was back in Australia in Melbourne and I was gearing up for our Australian launch because I guess one of the things we learned in the GFC was we'd, we'd, we'd started the business in Australia, but then we'd moved it to London. And so much of our business was constrained within the M25 in, in, in the UK. And so when the GFC hit, we were, we were really wishing, I mean, our business went to zero. So we were wishing we had some global exposure because Australia was actually fairly well insulated from all of that. And so starting the new business very early on, we wanted to be global. Um, we wanted, we didn't want to be constrained in any one geography and I guess the benefit of a partnership like Dan and mine is he wanted to stay in the UK I wanted to come back into Australia perfect and we were then able to sort of expand out to up to Singapore obviously across to New Zealand the US Canada um, so it was a good deal now one thing that's she talked about just the, the, the importance of building influence, of having a recession-proof business. We're obviously going through somewhat a recession right now uh, with the current pandemic. So uh, what would you say then 
for those listening to this who are perhaps may have been hit by COVID uh, or looking to, you know, they've done the pivot or looking to to expand, uh, what what in your eyes is a recession-proof business? What are the key elements to that? Yeah, so, you know, everyone's talking about like AI and all these fancy trends and biotech and what have you. That the biggest trends that I think are most relevant for small businesses and have been before COVID are... Uh, media in terms of the ability for anyone to be able to have be their own media broadcaster of you know youtube you know facebook instagram etc these different platforms podcasts things that we're doing right here you know the the ability to broadcast a message is massively underutilized leveraging technology right so the tools and apps to be able to make small businesses more efficient and effective and then leveraging intellectual property knowledge, like the, the knowledge that people already have in their head is underutilized. Um, intellectual property is the most valuable asset, literally. Um, if you look at the Australian Stock Exchange, 60% of the value of the ASX is valued based on intellectual property, not plant, capital, machinery, or physical infrastructure. It's the stuff that literally people have come up with um, and packaged. And if you look at what are the three most valuable categories of IP, it's brand, it's media and it's technology. And so um, whether you are struggling as a result of COVID or whether you're thriving as a result of COVID, even before COVID, the three big ways to be able to not just recession-proof your business but to be more scalable um, and to be more efficient, to be more profitable is to leverage media, to leverage technology and to, le uh, to leverage the knowledge and the intellectual property that you already have between your ears. And, and you take a traditional business doesn't matter if it's a fish and chip shop or a consultant or an engineer or a hairdresser or whatever it is, and you kind of look at, all right, what's the, what's the physical manifestation of what we're doing? Right? We're cutting hair here or, or you know, we're, we're doing corporate advisory or we're doing engineering plans or architectural or whatever it is, interior design. But there's what we do, but then there's the knowledge that enables us to do that. And I would say when you sort of step back and look at, extracting the knowledge that you have in your head and then leveraging that with media and with technology in, in interesting ways, um, that's where you become digital. It's where you become scalable. Uh, and that's where you get to enjoy more fun, flexibility and freedom. And so for a lot of our clients, I know COVID was a, a real challenge uh, and a blessing because it, it put a, 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 it forced that, uh, strategic timeline <laughs> to be accelerated. So, you know, we've been named as one of the world's leading business accelerators. I think we've been trumped by by COVID. I think that was a, a pretty powerful accelerator. I think everyone's been innovating like mad. But but certainly to answer your question, more media, more technology, and and more IP. Love it. Now, one of the things that one of the messages that really stood out for me, and I've stuck with, you know, going back five or so years, and I was going through the program with you, uh, that you often repeated was uh, your your I want it in your words but I'm going to probably screw it up here but you know uh, the idea is basically that you're sitting on a, on a, on a like a pot of gold um, and you, you just talk to you know your experience your expertise uh, can you talk a little bit about yeah. that and you know yeah so um, w one of the things that I've discovered being in the the I guess the inner circle of a, a hyper um, collaborative entrepreneurial environment um, where, where people are kicking goals, you know, they're winning awards, they're being featured in TED, they're, they're fast growth businesses, et cetera. 
Um, and then you get the the people that kind of want that but aren't yeah, there yet. There's usually a lot of fear, doubt, insecurity. Am I enough? Especially when we talk about the idea of writing a book or putting thought leadership out there or, or positioning yourself with awards. It's hard not to. Um, you'd also almost um, need to be a little bit psychopathic <laughs> or or just have a, a, an ego that's way too overblown not to self-reflect and go like, am I enough? And in, in my experience, people are standing on a mountain of value that they cannot recognize for themselves, right? It's if you've ever if you've ever climbed a mountain, I, I remember uh, climbing a, a mountain called Mount Agung in Bali, and, and, and I, as I climbed that mountain, it gave me a better view of this other mountain. Um, and that's kind of the problem. The higher you get up the mountain, you get to see all these other mountains, and they all look great and beautiful. So, oh, look at that mountain over there and that mountain over there. And the metaphor, of course, is comparison. Look at that person over there and that business over there and all these other great mountains surrounding you, but you can't see your own. And so it's very easy to think that everyone else has got this great mountain of opportunity, this great mountain of value, but you don't, right? All you can see is the shrub and the rocks and you remember the struggle and the grind of, of getting as high as you've got, but you can't see the majesty of your own mountain because you're so close to it. And so part of what our business does, as you know, is, is provides people with that reflection, that mirror to be able to help them recognise the mountain of value that they're on. And, and the moment we get someone in an environment, right, with a community of like-minded people and everyone's doing it together and everyone's got a bit of that fear, doubt, and insecurity because that's a very human thing. doesn't matter if you're the CEO of a business with, you know, 50 employees or 500 employees or it's just you starting out. It's, it's the human condition. And so I think if everybody could recognise that regardless of what they think or feel, if they've been serving people in their life and, and solving problems for people, in their life and they've been doing that to some degree of efficacy, um, then they are standing on a mountain of value and they know it or not and their job is to get out of their own way, discover that mountain of value and share it with the world. And to us, that's that's what it means to make a dent in the universe. Now, for someone listening to this, obviously I would uh, recommend that you go and sign up for the KPI program and you get involved <laughs> with the dent team to actually extract that information. Uh, but let's say we're not ready to go there yet. Uh, what yeah, let's say that. The first, yeah, what's the first couple of steps to actually unpack uh, that amount of value? Yeah, look, so look, if anyone's um, if anyone wants to find me on Instagram, you can just Google Glenn Carlson, I'll come up or, or find me on Instagram. Uh, happy to get anyone a copy of the Key Person of Influence book. That would be a good place to start. Um, just personal message me and say, hey, heard you on uh, Anthony's show and um, give, us your, give us your address and we'll shoot you through uh, a copy of the book. More than happy. We've, we've also got always events and conferences and different things that you might be able to attend as a guest. Um, but I think the first thing to do is just reach out and say, hey, love the book, please. Uh, and that's a good rabbit hole to go down. Of course, people can uh, find me on Facebook, plenty of video content that we've got there, YouTube, same thing, uh, the podcast, the Dent Podcast, which has cracked 100 episodes where I interview key people of influence uh, and unpack their journey and their story and the nuance of, of some of the different successes that they've had and certainly more recently some of the challenges and how people have pivoted and developed over COVID applying these principles. Um, but probably the most the most tangible first thing might be a copy of the book. I agree. 
now we're going to go from, let's assume that you've already gone through the process of extracting your IP. Uh, you've yeah. got a process or methodology uh, and something that really, you know, I've been excited to see within the, the, the community is people putting up and sharing their scorecards. Let's talk about yeah. scorecard marketing, Glenn, and, and why you and Dan are so big on um, like now is the time to be putting out a scorecard and utilizing those for your business. 100%. So, um, well, essentially, maybe let's just step a little step back. Like, what is a scorecard? Well, essentially, we, we have a, a software platform called ScoreApp. You can go to scoreapp.com, check it out. And we've built this specifically uh, because of an experience that we had. So this is about seven, six, seven years ago now. Uh, we're releasing an updated edition of the Key Person of Influence book. And we're all talking about influence and we're talking about how important it is to pitch your business and publish content, have great products and raise your profile and do partnerships and all this sort of stuff. And, and we were creating great content. People could watch content on all the different platforms. They could read the book. They could, get, they could come to our conferences and events. Great. But we realized it was really one way, right? The communication was one way, which it is for the vast majority of marketers. I mean, there might be comments and interaction and all that sort of stuff, but you don't really know who you're talking to and you're providing people with insights but you're not really sure whether those insights and that education is landing and really helping people understand the problems that they're experiencing and how to solve that and you know, if you think about sales sales is is like someone's got a success checklist in their mind so if you're talking to a prospect they've got an idea in their head of what they want their life to look like right it's like tick 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 it's like if it's an interior design i've got an idea of what i want my home to look like right and so everyone's got this this checklist in their mind and i guess all sales and marketing is about trying to highlight that checklist for people but also help them recognize that they're not there yet right they've got a bit of a deficiency right now but it's all very sort of subjective and it's oh, I'm reading an article and I'm trying to get those boxes ticked etc and so we thought well what about this idea of just putting together a success checklist and so we did it for the key person of influence rewrite of the book and there was a, a company called SoTech and we got them to build us a little yes no quiz where people could answer a whole bunch of questions that would sort of benchmark them against how good they were at pitching or publishing content or raising their products. And so we'd ask a question like, how, you know, are you comfortable pitching your business in a compelling way in under 30 seconds? You know, or have you won a, a, um, a celebrated industry award in the last 12 months? You know, it's yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And so if you were to give that to any of our established clients, they'd be going, yes, 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 yes. And they'd be getting a really high score. But if you gave it to any of our prospective clients, they'd be going, yes, oh, no, no, maybe, no, yes. You know, there's a, a lot more deficiency there. And so what was great, we just put it in the book and, and said people go to the website, do it for free. And what, what started happening is people were able to instantly benchmark themselves as to how influential they were. And, I mean, people can go just Google key person of influence scorecard. It'll pop up. You can go down the rabbit hole yourself and benchmark your own influence. But this was great because, A, it was quantifying it in a way that reading a book or listening to a podcast or, or watching a video couldn't do. It kind of grabbed people by the, like, by the reality 
of their situation that they couldn't hide from. It's like, oh, okay, this is the reality. I've got a, I've got a big gap here. You know, they'll have some strengths, but they'll also have some weaknesses that would that it would identify. Um, so that has just added a lot of value from our clients. You know, we were creating books, we were creating podcasts, we were creating all this value to try and create value from our customers' perspective, our prospects' perspective, that they had a level of insights that they couldn't get anywhere else. Um, and hey, presto, this did it in a super efficient way. So great value for the customer. But now from our team's perspective, this was like we didn't expect it because all of a sudden we're now getting those individuals that do the scorecard. We were getting their contact records and we're getting the answers to all these questions. And so by the end of the scorecard, people could book straight in to a call with one of our team. That was a game changer. All of a sudden, the team are getting a whole bunch of sales appointments that are automated. And we already knew what all the pain points were and what these people wanted without even having to talk to them. So the the sales cycles contracted massively. Our conversions went through the roof massively. It was like a salesperson's dream to be able to call someone up and already have the answers to 40-odd questions around where all their pain points were. And essentially, the whole sales conversation boiled down to, do you want to improve the score? And people would go, yes. And it's like, well, we've got this program and this process and here's how it improves the score and here's a bunch of our clients that have done it and here's what they've scored and, you know, this was their before and after and all that sort of stuff, um, you know, which, you know, be obviously is where, you know, your interest in this came in from the perspective of case studies, being able to quantify their before and after performance, which we can talk about. Um, but this was a game changer for us. Um, and, you know, for the last seven years, I got the, I got the numbers here. So for the last, since 2017, which I have the data for, just coming through our scorecard, we've been averaging 30 leads a week. Um, that equates to four and a half conversations a week, just from those 30 leads, four and a half conversations a week on average, um, just under two sales a week which leads to about 21,000 in revenue just from that lead source, just from the scorecard, right? So that's a seven-figure annual, million-dollar annual revenue just from that lead source. So not only is this adding great value, not only is this accelerating sales cycles for us, but it's bloody working. It's performing as a sales tool. And it wasn't like a cheesy you know, seven mistakes report or something, which is sort of what most people were doing at the time. It was a really sophisticated professional professional tool. So, of course, a lot of our clients started asking us to build one for them, and we were. We built about 15 or 20, but they were about 10 grand each at the time because it was all bespoke and custom. And so two things happened. The first thing happened is we bought the business that was building the scorecards, so we rolled that into the, the Dent Group, and that was Sotech. And the second thing that happened uh, about a year and a half ago was we raised a million bucks to be able to build score app, to raise some money and build score app uh, as an actual, uh, you know, a software as a service platform, right? So now we've got over, over 1,200 users from all, the, all around the world running their scorecards across any industry you could imagine. Um, it's been our first experience growing and scaling our own technology platform, which has been challenging but also really rewarding at the same time. Uh, We've crossed the threshold just recently uh, where we're not relying on on any of the venture capital to fund the business. It's all now self-funding based on our clients. Um, So long as 
people spend the time in the first sort of 30 days to get their scorecard up and running, they don't turn it off because they just keep generating high-quality, data-rich leads. Um, and that's kind of how we got started with it, mate. It's, it's, it turned out turned into a scorecard for us, which was valuable for our business. It turned into an acquisition and then it turned into a, a whole new startup. What a crazy journey. And I, I really love just um, the path that you went through, you know, having a few people interested in what you were already doing because you guys were presenting the scorecard and that was generating your leads. And I remember when you, you whipped it out and showed the back end during one of the workshops and we, like people's jaws were dropping, like that's rich yeah. data that, that could be your, your sales team could go and, you know, um, have conversations with. And that's one of the hardest things. I know as a consultant sitting on with a prospect, sometimes you're just digging you know, in that conversation and, and you're trying to get to um, yeah. real information. Yeah, and you're wasting their time and you're wasting your time and you both know it's a sales conversation. You're kind of doing this little dance and it's like both of you would rather be doing something else, right? Um, whereas the, the beauty of this is it just gets straight to it. It's like do the scorecard. takes five minutes. Do you want to improve the score? Yes or no? Because, of course, however you build your scorecard is – uh, how, you know, you build a scorecard around what your business does, right? So where in the business, for the key person of influence scorecard, where in the business of improving that score? Um, and so uh, it, it becomes a very easy way of helping people self-diagnose, A, is this a problem worth solving? And B, is this the sort of organisation I want to work with? And in my experience, the organisations that are, the best at helping people identify the real issues that need solving, get the business. Hmm. Now your score, well, the, the KPI or the dense scorecard has 40 questions on that. Would you suggest, would you recommend that as an ideal number of questions for a scorecard or is that? Yeah. So, well, now, now we've got <laughs> over a thousand users, right? We're getting a lot more data and a lot more insights. Um, I would actually recommend people start with about 10 or 15 questions. Um, so we already had a fairly strong marketing background, right? And so we went all in 40 questions, you know, benchmarking people against our methodology, et cetera. But there was a whole architecture and IP behind that. Um, so for those of those that have a marketing background, yeah, between 35 and, and 40 questions with a variety of categories. Like if you've already got a methodology that you write about or talk about that you could kind of benchmark people against those steps, yeah, it goes straight to about between 30 and 40 questions. But if you don't, and everything I just sort of said, you're like, what method? What front? No, I don't have that architecture. Great. Just just 15, 15 questions that would help someone benchmark whether or not they're on track or off track. Nice and easy. No categories. Just keep it really simple um, because we're just finding people are surprised that often the simpler scorecards, um, A, they get done a lot faster. There's a lot less abandonment and they lead just as effectively, if not more effectively, to people booking straight into a calendar for a follow-up conversation, right? They just need a yes, no, yes, no. Uh, all right, I need to fix this. Let's let's do it, right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, basically I would say if you've already got a lot of experience in IP, like if you're an author or a speaker or, you know, you, you've got a degree of sophistication around your internal IP already, between 30 and 40 questions. If not, start easy. Start generating qualified leads. Start experiencing what it's like being able to have a conversation with people where you've got that data at your fingertips and you can literally start introducing to every call, would you like to improve the score as part mm. of the, the close, if you like, um, 
and, and as that starts to develop, um, improve it. You're listening to Authentic Influence. Learn the tips, strategies, and practices for taking your influence to the next level. Now, back to the show. Yeah, I just really like the ability to uh, have a baseline or start with a baseline and say, okay, this is where you're at. That's your score, right? So whatever um, um, industry you're in, I've seen this work in, in many different use cases. Uh, can you share maybe one or two examples of the types of businesses that are using the scorecard and, and what type of results they've been able to produce? Yeah, yeah, we got we got heaps. Well, I mean, it's just, so we've generated over a million leads now for our clients. We've got big celebrity authors like Jay Shetty. Um, so he uses it because he has his coaching business. So he's trying to take his 10 million followers on social media and, and consolidate those down into the people that that should be coaches. Um, so we've got big celebrities, we've got Fortune 500 companies, we've got FTSE 100 companies using it. But for most small businesses, um, it's really cool. Like um, there's one of our clients, Jackson Ugnami. So he runs leadership training for kids in schools, right? So kind of a simple sort of a business. Um, now, accessing principals, accessing teachers, hard. Um, and that was his biggest issue, right? Once he was in the school, they loved him. They kept him, kept bringing him back and his team, et cetera. Uh, he set up Scorecard and within the first 30 days generated 100 leads, combination of principals and teachers from around the UK. So that's a that's a pretty good deal. Mark LaRoost um, is a, a, a very well-known TED speaker uh, in the UK. Uh, he does culture consulting. Uh, to big corporate within the first two weeks score app became his number one source of wow. leads um you know darren finkelstein here in australia yes. um the 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 boat guy come the accountability coach uh, Love it. so he spent i forget the numbers but he spent about three or four hundred dollars on facebook ads promoting his scorecard that generated oh, I think it was about three or 400 hits to the site and people went through, which led to about six people booking straight in for a conversation with him. Four sales came out as a result, which is 60,000 bucks, all within his first 30 days of business. Yeah, first month, I think. That, that's just First wicked. month of business. We just get yeah. this over and over and over and over and over again is that, yeah, certainly anyone that's already got some marketing happening, right? They're already kind of out there. They've got a bit of traction. They've got, you know, some social platforms. They're, they're doing some videos. They're doing some podcasts. Like what, what this does to um, providing that ready-made lead magnet is, is really cool. So uh, Phil Calvert is another example, social media speaker. One of the things he said, he's constantly getting people on Facebook Lives, Um but, of course, if it's on a Facebook Live, if you don't get them onto your database, you've got to pay Zuckerberg again to try and to try and access them, right? You don't get their details. And so last presentation he did to 120 financial advisors, he just pointed them to his scorecard and he had 95 of them of 120, 95 do the scorecard, and not just they're on his database, 
but are on his database with name, email, phone number, and the answer to 35 questions that they've answered um, specifically about, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of their social media strategy, which he's in the business of improving. You know, it's kind of like... Um, <laughs> I love it. it I love it. A, it becomes a bit of a no-brainer. Yeah, because people are... But marketing is just so complicated, right? And and people just want to go back to the day where it, you just have to be good at what you do. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice, right? If you could just be good at what you do and you didn't have, also have to be, you know, a super marketing person. And I guess because this, a scorecard is built around so many layers of psychology, right? When, like, for, for example, um, you know, one of our clients, Gina Ledniak, uh, who I think you know as well, when she first did the scorecard, she had to answer the question, have you won a respected industry award in the last 12 months? She had to say no. Now, that's a little micro tension, right? That's a little, ah, uh, like it's a pebble in your shoe. It's like, God damn it, I want to be able to say yes to that question, but if I'm dealing with reality, I can't. And, and I guess part of what a scorecard does when someone does is it, is it, it brings reality into high definition. It's like... Here's the reality. You can't ignore it. So it's almost like taking the blinkers off, pulling the head out of the sand. And she's like, okay. So she worked with us. Within two years, she wins Telstra Businesswoman of the Year, right? So she's able yeah. to tick that box, win, right? And so um, the nuance of that, right, to try and get to that in a sales conversation where you can kind of touch that, that, that tension point, that pain point, that pebble in the shoe, given that you don't really know where people's real motivations lie. Whereas when they go through 30, 35-odd questions where you can really get that nice comprehensive view. Now, I'm saying this from a sales perspective because we built it as a tool to help businesses generate more data, which leads to more leads, which leads to more sales, and that's great for businesses. But it's also bloody valuable for the people doing the scorecard because it gives them this reality check of it's like, oh, I know, I know the. It's like getting an X-ray. It's like oh, I know the problem now. We got a hairline fracture there. We got to fix it or not fix it or whatever it is. You can, you can deal with the is. You can deal with the reality, which is which is really valuable. And you can't get that level of insight just watching a video or or reading a book often. One hundred percent. I don't know. There's so much you can do with that data as well. So with my being the marketer here, with my marketer hat on you know where do we get content from like everything that people put into your scorecard um really gives you here's your content strategy go and talk about these problems that people are having right oh not just that you can you can if it, if you connect it with your crm based on how people score you can send them different communication right so so ours is structured in a way well if, if people score low on pitch well they'll get a particular email that that kind of says, "Hey, you did well on this, but you didn't do so well on pitch." You're likely to be experiencing some of these ch challenges and frustrations as a result of having a, a low pitch, because you know those problems are fairly predictable. And so we can be much more nuanced and personalized. And I think the important word is relevant mm. to people, um, based on what they're actually dealing with, as opposed to just having to broadcast sort of generic content to our audience, the moment someone's done that scorecard, we can be hyper-personalized. And I think, you know, the biggest businesses in the world are using hyper-personalized marketing. I'm pretty sure Siri is listening to me right now. Um, it's just not available <laughs> to small business, whereas it is now, 
right? With with something like Score App, you can use hyper personalized marketing, just not in a creepy way. Right? You can use it in a really, you know, high integrity, high value uh, uh, manner. Um, where by using that information, you get to be more relevant, more effective which means you get to make more sales in less time, which makes you more profitable, which means you get more of what you want, they get more of what they want, everyone's happy. It's a great tool. All right. Now, if you're listening up to this point, I want you to go and ping Glenn on Instagram. He's Glenn Carlson. Get a free book and scorecard. Just send him a message. Uh, let him know that you've come from my podcast. Uh, Glenn, let's talk about case studies. Um, yeah, man. Because... I'm doing research for my book and I'm looking mm. at organizations and companies that are effectively leveraging case studies for, for in different parts of the buyer journey. So, yep. you know, for attraction, trying to bring people to your, to your work and what you're doing, but also, you know, you've, we've talked about sales conversion and how scorecards can help you really have sales conversations. Case studies are also in that conversation. Uh, they can actually support, you know, the, the demand generation and, and the sales enablement. Um, can you talk about just your, your, give us your take on case studies and why, why they're useful, why, why you invest in them? Yeah, well, I'll tell you the first real time I, I got the value of a case study was when I was presenting back in the early days in, in Melbourne. Um, and we didn't have any case studies in Australia yet, right? We had a few in the UK. And so I'd sort of cherry picked a few of the case studies. We had videos of them, et cetera. So we'd always sit our, our clients down and, and go through the video and I can, I can share a bit of a script that we use on that. So then we can, because one, one of the issues is, you know, people would often back in the day say, oh, can I speak to some of the, your clients that have already gone through the program, right? Now we haven't had that question in, you know, seven years or so. But at the time we used to get it a lot because we didn't have the podcast, we didn't have any of this sort of stuff. And so instead of bothering our clients every time, you know, someone wanted to talk to someone, we were just like, look, can we just have the conversation once? We'll capture all the bits. We'll zip it all up into a cool video so we can show people and hopefully reduce that objection because um, we wanted to make sales but we didn't want to bother our clients. So that was, that was an insight on its own. So we had a few of these videos. And then I'm presenting to a you know, room of about 150-odd people and I do that uh, every couple of weeks. And um, this one presentation, I had a bunch of business services case studies. I had a financial planner, I had an accountant, I had an engineer, some, some stuff like that. And there was a, a woman at the back said, oh, I just really love this, but it, it clearly it's just not right for me. And I'm like, oh, how come? And she's like, well, I'm a naturopath. But all of your case studies were, were business services, and I don't do business services. And I was like, oh. Now, we'd had a bunch of naturopaths in the UK, but we hadn't had any naturopaths or anyone in that kind of allied health sort of world signing up, uh, allied health and alternative health signing up um, in Australia. And it kind of clicked. It's like, oh, I hadn't, I hadn't been relevant to that whole group. And so anyway, she came on board because I explained, no, 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 let me show you this case study and let me show you that case study. But anyway, the very next session that I did, next 150-odd people, I made sure I included um, yeah, a, a, a case study from a naturopath that we had in the UK and we had two naturopaths sign up in the audience that day, right? So, like, it's just it became, you know, you would think it's it, – 
my Sarah, my wife, she's just gone to, we're selling a house, right? And she's just gone to dress it, right? So you're going to mm-hmm. get a bunch of great furniture and put it in there and make it sexy, et cetera, because people just don't have an imagination, right? They walk into an empty house and it's like, this is shit, it's empty. Um, <laughs> like, I, I don't want to sit on cold tiles. What is this house? No, we're not buying this as opposed to, you know, you rent a couch. It's like, oh, my God, look at this place. Look at that couch. It's amazing. People are funny. Um, and so if we kind of approach this idea that people just don't have an imagination and, and, and from our perspective, you would think I'm talking in general business terms. You'd think people would understand that as a naturopath, they could apply the same principles as an engineer or as an accountant, but like, no, like we needed to really make that link explicit. Yeah. And so that's where we put started putting a lot of effort into working out well, well what are the big categories of industries that we work in and do we have the case studies for those particular industries and if we didn't we'd have a big question mark on it and we'd we'd look for the the people coming through that were in those industries that were doing really well and we'd say hey look can we um can we get you in front of a camera can we get you on the podcast etc. Uh, and so, yeah, case studies are a, a big deal for us. And, and if I can just keep going just on this little roll, because the final piece of the puzzle here is uh, in the Key Person of Influence book, we talk about profile. And a lot of people like worry about profile being like meaning that they've got to become this arrogant self-promoter. And it's like, no, 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 profile isn't about you, right? The secret to profile is to get known publicly by the success of your clients, Right, So you're putting the spotlight on your clients. You're putting your spotlight on the case studies and the success stories. It doesn't matter if you're selling drill bits. It doesn't matter if, you're, you know, if you're, you're selling engineering, infrastructure, project management. It doesn't matter, right? It's the successes of your clients that demonstrate the real results that you deliver. And so being able to have those case studies on websites to be able to have those case studies on video, to be able to have a podcast where you can like unpack those case studies long-term uh, story. I was just talking actually on my podcast. This is like it's like a fractal in a fractal, right? So I was doing another interview with Catherine Maslin, who's one of our clients, great success story, naturopath. Um, and so I'm doing a podcast to kind of unpack her story and her journey, right, capturing it there. And she's talking to me about when she's launching her podcast, talking to her most successful clients that have had huge transformations for the podcast and having those long-form conversations there. So when anyone has, you know, a similar issue like, you know, infertility or, you know, chronic fatigue or whatever it is, it's like I'll listen to this story with, you know, Bob or Jane or whatever it is on the podcast and within – yeah, an hour that person's just heard this incredible transformation that's so relevant to exactly what they're experiencing. Solved. Um, <laughs> and so get known by the success of your clients. So we're, we are big on, um, on on case studies, success stories, capturing, documenting those as a, as a big part of what we do. Now, for those watching the video, you can actually see on the screen, I've pulled up the Dent website and I just love the way the categories are laid out. Like these are the the types of businesses we work with. Here are the different you know segments or sectors. Uh, and within that, then you've got a couple of stories and they link to a video, which is you know, a video, or I guess an interview with the client or them on yeah. stage pitching their business, which is part of the program. Uh, and I just love how you've integrated that into a system. Um, a question I commonly get, 
Glenn, is how do you actually measure the effectiveness of case studies? So if we, if someone's listening to this and they go, I want to, I love what you're saying, Glenn, I want to invest in it. I'm going to get videos done of all my, my clients. Okay. But how do I actually know that that's working for me? Uh, how would you respond to that? We've never really thought of it like that. Uh, I'm just I'm just trying to think, though, if there's anything in my brain that could be a real specific answer to that question. We we think uh, we we think in terms of ecosystems. Right. So we don't sort of look at any one thing. You know, like people ask me, oh, should I write a book or should I get a scorecard? It's like, no, do both. Right. You, you want the you want the book and the scorecard and the awards and the case studies and the you know, you want the whole ecosystem of things to be able to come together uh, to be able to have that sort of impact. Right. So I would say to to go that, that it is an essential component. And it's probably the most important component for someone in early stage as well. Like I was thinking of all the things that that would have certainly one of the biggest force force multipliers just as per my original story. You know, I went from having no naturopaths, just including a case study there, to having naturopaths signing up where we didn't have any of them before. So while we don't try and measure the result of case studies specifically, I don't even actually know how you would isolate that. But... Um, I can I know for a fact that without them, business was hard and we weren't making sales in particular categories. And as soon as we do have them, business is easy or sales are easier and we are making sales in the in that category. So I, I think you could argue very, very comfortably that you know you're doing yourself a massive disservice not to have them. But also because they can like you've got to decide to get them. You've got to decide yeah. to compile them. And the mistake that I see people making is once they decide to compile them, they don't do it well. And the case studies aren't effective once they've got them. So I would say, um, A, case studies are essential. B, they're, they're amplified as part of a broader ecosystem of things that you bring to the table to add credibility. Um, but I would say then the final thing, though, is that if you're going to do it and put the energy in, put just a little bit of extra energy in and just do it right the first time because you know many times i'll see like a testimonial a case study and it doesn't say shit it's like <laughs> Meh. okay there's a person with a little round photo and some words next to it but they're really not saying a lot um mm. and i can't imagine who that's actually speaking to so whenever we do a case study we really think about and we work with the person that we're extracting the case study from to kind of articulate look we want this to be relevant we want to make sure that you're talking you know to the same sort of person that you were before this with the same problems and the same frustrations and the same issues and the same challenges can you remember that and they're like you know they got to open the folder in their head and go back there because often people have forgotten what it was like right before before they were struggling um so that answer the question? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I, I'm going to say, having worked with thousands of clients now, building their case studies for them, uh, I have a similar answer. And I say, look, it's part of your marketing mix and your sales mix. It's not the only solution. Uh, and it's not, you know, obviously, if you're trying to optimize for SEO and, and search engine growth, right? Yeah. Case studies are probably not the best thing to do that. Um, you know, you've used them in your podcast. You've got your guests, sorry, your clients 
appear on your show and you talk about and they actually talk through their journeys and their successes and their failures um and that's powerful right so it's a it does so much more and you can something you do really well with case studies is you 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 repurpose them right so you have videos that go onto your linkedin and to youtube and you've got them in your email blast and you've got them you know you've got literally case studies walking onto the stage at your events and talking about yeah. you know giving their pitches right so it, it's just fantastic how you put that all together uh, we're going to wrap up i know we're just about a bit, a bit over time here glenn and i want to respect your time here um so two more quick questions for you first what's one resource whether it's a book video podcast something that's really helped you understand marketing for business wow that's a that's a big question what is one resource that has helped me understand marketing for business okay um so we have a framework in our business called laps right and we measure our laps leads appointments presentations and sales so a lead becomes a lead whenever it hits your database right doesn't matter where it comes from right so that would be number one an appointment is where that person is invited to and accepts to either come along to an event or a one-to-one conversation or a boardroom meeting or basically essentially a sales cut, like come and join me for a sales conversation. If someone accepts that, that's an appointment. When they're actually in attendance and you have the opportunity to have a conversation, either one-to-one or one-to-many, if you're selling at scale, that would be a presentation and then a sale, right? And so it would be easy for me to say, oh, this book or this podcast is a resource, but I would actually say a spreadsheet where you're measuring your laps leads, appointments, presentations, and sales every single week so you cannot hide from the reality, good or bad, is actually going to provide the best feedback loop to be able to help you improve. So then when you do hear a little snippet from a podcast or a book or something, you've actually got the data you need to be able to optimize for yourself. I have never met a profitable business that doesn't know their numbers. And most small business owners especially want to avoid measuring anything to do with sales and marketing because they're afraid of what the numbers will show them. And yet the moment you start um, dealing with the discomfort of an underperforming funnel, if you like, or an underperforming set of numbers, you, you seek to improve those numbers. You know, what gets measured gets improved. It's a cliche because it's true. So I would say in terms of the things that have helped me in my marketing and guiding me to improve my marketing and focusing on what I need to be focusing on, it would be just measuring my laps religiously every single week and then looking at, well, what's the problem that I need to fix? Is it the conversion between leads and appointments or appointments to presentations or presentations and sales? And, you know, how do I go down rabbit holes and jump online and find influences and books and podcasts that relate to just that one thing, right? Because if I didn't have the laps that I was measuring, I'd be lost in just an infinite amount of noise, which is the the marketing education world. So, basically, if you if you want to if you want more sales, if you want to build a better business, you just got to do more laps. Do your laps, people. I really, <laughs> I love it, love it. Okay, last one for you, mate. Uh, what's one thing that you do now now that you're a father and and uh, obviously a husband and also an entrepreneur? So, what's uh, one thing you're doing? For your mental health, uh, I meditate twenty minutes twice a day, every day, without fail, no matter what. Um, and uh, I think it should be taught in schools. Uh, I was very um, caught up 
in the external world. Uh, I was very caught up in trying to find happiness and peace of mind and confidence and all these things in achievements um, in the uh, in the external world, and yet none of those achievements ever actually made me happy. And, um, you know, one can have a beautiful family and a beautiful child, et cetera, but still be wrestling with the existential um, kind of challenge of, you know, who am I and what am I doing in the world? And, you know, I was in a situation where I thought building a successful business, having a brand that's built on the premise of business as a force for good and contributing and supporting, you know, great causes and organizations and having a great team and a great culture and a family and a beautiful daughter and a, you know, house and a big block of land and all the stuff that sort of people tend to think, wow, wouldn't that be great? And I could look at, I could look at my wife, Sarah, and I'm like, I love this woman. I can look at my daughter and I, 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 and I, I love this child and I can look at my business and I go, I love this business and yet there's still this big hole. God, it's like, what the hell is this about? Um, and one of our first speakers actually that we used to promote back in the day uh, before Dent was a guy called Dr. John Martini, and he said, nothing that you can experience through the senses will ever satisfy the soul. And I found that to be true. And so for me, twice a day, dropping into meditation, dropping into quiet, quietening the nervous system, drawing away from those senses and sort of as Deepak would say, I think dropping into the gap of yeah. just pure consciousness and then being able to come back up again and perform action in the world where that action is now informed even just a little bit um, with sort of a bit of Tinkerbell fairy dust on top. Um, for me, not only I think has that given me the, the answer that I needed at least to the challenges I was experiencing existentially around life and happiness and, and deep fulfilment um, every day, twice a day, Vedic meditation. I love that. I really appreciate the honesty there too. And it's it's not uncommon. I've actually heard that from multiple um, people who are deemed successful on the outside uh, and, and they've just gone, there's a void uh, and they're trying to find, you know, what is that? Um, the trappings of success, I suppose, and, and that's um, an interesting journey. And the good news for everyone listening to this or watching this is you can start meditating right away. There's nothing, you don't have to wait to crack the, the you know, million dollar success <laughs> or the billion dollar success to get there. Uh, really appreciate it. No, and, and there's something about it. Yeah, there's something about, um, there's something about meditating that I think connects one to the same impulses that are driving and, and organizing nature. You know, nature doesn't struggle to thrive. She doesn't struggle to organize herself. She doesn't struggle to overcome challenges and problems and adversities and whether it's a bushfire or we spill a shitload of oil into her ocean or something like that, she finds a way to do her thing, you know, without stress and without frustration. Now, the way she responds to that might not be particularly good for humans, but she's good, right? And I think that when we drop into that consciousness, we come out with a little bit of the magic that is guided by nature and, and that shows up as charm and that shows up as as curiosity and that shows up as interest and desire and it's just then life just becomes well follow the charm follow the desire what most excites and interests you and i think for most people they are chasing 
those desires of a very superficial nature because they're not connected to the source. But when you're able to connect to a level of source, then all of your desires that are manifesting are in some way drawn from and enabled by and let's say guided by something more. And I'm not sure it's possible to articulate what that something more is, but um, if if one has not had the experience, I would make that the priority over becoming a key person of influence, over getting a scorecard, over working on how to solve the problems of your business because there is a, a truly effortless way for it all to come together and it's not going to come through a piece of technology or another app or another book or another podcast. It's going to come from something that is your innate right and gift to access, which is, you know, what it is to be human. So, mate, thanks for having me. Thank you again, Glenn Carlson. Everyone, please head over to, uh, we can go to dent.global as a website or you can yeah. hit up Glenn on Instagram.com and that's Glenn Carlson. Uh, and I'll certainly link to all the resources mentioned here. Uh, I'm going to have to do some research on the type of meditation that Glenn's into, um, but uh, certainly there, there's a lot of value in this conversation. Thanks again, mate, and uh, I'll be seeing you real soon. Beautiful, brother. Go make a dent, mate. Thanks for having me. Ciao. Now, just quickly, if you want to check out the show notes for this episode, just head over to simplecreativemarketing.com forward slash podcast, uh, and you can grab all the links and things and resources on there. And also, if you are a conscious entrepreneur, got a professional services business, working B2B, uh, and you've got an interest in building influence and income through showing up, serving others, and being real, then I invite you to join my Authentic Influence Warriors Facebook group. Uh, If you want to do that, just head over to simplecreativemarketing.com forward slash community. Okay, thanks for joining in, and I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Authentic Influence podcast at AuthenticInfluence.co. 